Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 173, recorded on March 22nd of 2023. Uh, the Photo Geekery Show. Thanks for coming back for another uh, fun-filled hour or so of conversation, uh, tearing apart technology and where the industry is going in many different ways. Uh, and the industry is vastly changing. And we're seeing that across all sectors. We're seeing that with AI. We're seeing that with new sensor tech. Uh, we're, we're seeing the way we as human beings interact with photography change quite rapidly. And I'm glad I can be sort of uh, at the helm steering the ship of this podcast. But there was one really big change that was announced yesterday. And that happens to be uh, quite devastating to me and probably to a lot of photographers that dpreview.com is closing. So that is our first story. And I mentioned that before I introduce the guest, because my guest this week is the wonderful and amazing Chris Nichols. Chris, how are you doing, man? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me back on the show. And congratulations on the show uh, starting up again. I think that's great. Uh, I, 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 I always love being that. on it. Yeah, and yeah. I've got to have you on more often. Uh, I know that your schedules are often such that, you know, if I send you an email uh, and you get hundreds a day, you're just like me. It can kind of disappear. It's like trying to catch smoke to get your attention. Oh, uh, especially right now with this whole changeover with DP Review. It's been, uh, it's been wild. Yeah. I can, I can imagine. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I gather that uh, you've known for at least some time before the announcement because almost immediately at the same time, uh, DP Review TV put out a video that, uh, you know, detailed some of the, the fun that you guys have had. And I'm sure there's going to be more of that and some best of stuff uh, coming in the next little while. But take us through what's happening. Uh, as as far as you can, yeah, of course, yeah. So we have known for a little while, and uh, you know that was quite the shock, really. I mean, I remember we were shooting an episode, we were out, and we finally got word from it. And it's funny because, you know, we've always been kind of joking, like Amazon owns DP Review. They have for many, many years. We've always joked, like, when are they going to find out that they still own us? You know, and then what are they going to do about <laughs> it? And uh, and then, you know, one day we just get this call and it's like, oh, yeah, no, it turns out that uh, we're going to be shutting DPR down. And that was quite a shock. So, you know, it changes our plans. We we start to make more nostalgic videos, but we did have a lead up to it. So we had content prepared and the website is going to be going till April 10th. Then it goes read only. You know, there's still time. Absolutely. And so we still have lots of episodes coming out. So we hope that people still watch those episodes. You know, it's our kind of last last look back at what deep reviews done and it, they've done so much, right? I mean, we should talk about just the impact they've had on, I would say almost everybody's lives that's in this yeah. industry or that's interested in this industry. Well, and I remember early on reading DP review articles, um, you know, some of the in-depth stuff like uh, camera reviews and what have you. And I would get into the weeds of it, but I'd, I'd see 30 pages of content <laughs> and then I'd skip to the conclusion because I knew these sure. guys did their homework and I'd read the conclusion, find any salacious bits in there and then go back and reference the relevant section of the review that provides more detail. It was that verbosity, I suppose, that was really alluring to me. And that had an impact on on, on my work. Uh, and, and to try to replicate that level of, of knowledge and expertise, that, that's been important for me as well. So yes, it's, it's had an impact. And I've been a part of DP Review for a period of time, and I had some yes. wonderful guest appearances. <laughs> you mentioned how uh, Amazon was going to figure out that they, they they still owned you. And I was thinking about that the moment that we <laughs> shot one of the videos in Calgary when, remember the, the, the uh, cold open that we did? You can't forget that one, can you? So there, there was a sign oh. um, that was graffitied with a big and yep. very crude penis on it. And we... <laughs> yes. And and so we had to make that the open. I don't know why. It's just it, it had to happen. And so Chris is holding yeah. up a leaf, covering it up, very Adam and Eve style. Uh, and uh, and then we take the leaf down and we walk away after uh, uh, sharing a few brief words. And Amazon let that air. So yeah, um, I mean, who who doesn't love a crude <laughs> penis, right? I mean, it was uh, you know that was part of our style. And actually, you know what was great about DP Review. When Jordan and I started with them, you know, we've been talking to the staff. We meet them on press trips. That's really how it started, right? We go on press trips. We're working for the camera store, but we're meeting guys like Rishi Sanyal and Dale Baskin and Carrie Rose on these press trips. And, you know, 
everything seemed to gel. You know, we respected each other's work and it really made a lot of sense for us to be able to bring more of our style, which is, you know, maybe a little bit more humorous, a little bit more irreverent in some cases. And, and combine that with their technical expertise, which I think nobody would disagree. They're like par excellence. They were the number one website for technical excellence, right? Yeah. And so we really wanted to be able to, be, I was like a translator to take that information that they've gathered and then translate it into a way which is easy to digest on camera, right? That was but really- But you had already been doing that before as well at the camera store TV, correct? So- Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you had the methodology already understood as to what was so. I, I mean, maybe take us, take us through from the very beginning of of where that started at uh, the Camera Store TV, uh, where that went with DP Review, and now where is that going? Right. You know, I think just like you said with DP Review, I mean, I started looking at that website probably 1998, 1999. You know, up to that point, it was all uh, mir.com slash my, the Malaysian photo site for vintage cameras. That was my that was my jam because I was shooting black and white film, <laughs> dark room. I loved all the vintage cameras. But when I started working in the camera store and I was right at the cusp of, of digital cameras, like we just had a tiny glass showcase with very expensive cameras that, you know, today's comparison are absolute garbage, right? Little point nine megapixels stuff. and what have you. Yeah. Oh, when we got two megapixels, that was huge. That was a big deal. And, you know, so many models, such new technology and, and really a clientele at that point that doesn't want to transition to digital, right? Kicking and screaming. We had to pull them into that world, right? Like we do with everything. I think we're going to talk about more stuff today about like that. And so DP Review was a great website. It was a great resource. We, you know, everybody used it. I'm sure every camera store salesperson used it as a reference for what can this camera do? Why would you buy it over another, right? And so that sort of inspired us to really start doing our own research, playing with cameras, reviewing them. But we still would always go to DP Review, see what those guys had to say about the product that we're reviewing, make sure that we're not talking out of our asses. And, uh, you know, we use that resource right up until now right because we're still in touch with the team they're telling us what uh, what we should get across or what's important to say or what their opinions are on it but i will say deep review as as specific as they are as talented as they are as technically oriented as they are they always gave jordan and i the freedom to then translate that with our own style and and do the things that we want to do and they took some risks i mean dale baskin was our editor he was really the guy who was always Dale's in our corner guy. Oh, Dale's a great guy. And he's like, look, guys, I want you to be able to do what you enjoy. I want you to be able to do what you think is going to be best for the viewers. And so I think it was a really good mix. And of course, a lot of people on Deep Review, a lot of the readers are like, ah, oh, forget these guys. We want technical articles. What are you doing? But a lot of other people are like, you know what? This is a great breath of fresh air and we really love it. And uh, I think it was a great mix. Well, and especially when you've got the the attention span of somebody watching a YouTube video, you have to take yeah. into account the kind of content that you're going to produce because it is inherently a different audience. Um, but what I've always loved about that uh, that separation between DP Review and DP Review TV is, in one case, it's the the theory that's DP Review. That's all the facts and the nuggets of science and everything that's and the measurements and the charts and that's that's there yeah. and that's great. Um, but DP Review TV was the practical application of said theory and how, how the camera felt in your hand and how useful those tools were. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, dissecting the image quality in real world examples and not necessarily uh, studio tests that honestly, as much as I love to do <laughs> the, the comparison sliders and see exactly how four different cameras perform at ISO 25,600, um, uh, that that's not going to translate into a YouTube video very well. So right. uh, I think you did a really good job, both you and uh, Jordan Drake, um, to kind of propel the idea forward that these cameras are tools, yes, and you can look at the spec sheet all you want and you can talk about it, but they're in your hands in the videos and yeah. they're behind the scenes recording the videos. And that I thought was a really cool... Uh, I guess, place to be. Uh, you're not going to be the DP review. You're going to be DP review TV. Uh, right. And now, what are you going to be? Well, so, you know, now that DP review is closing, uh, you know, first off, I just want to say before we go further, like, 
the outpouring of support that we've gotten online has been humbling. It's been amazing. Like everybody's been really good. They've been like, Oh, you know, when we, we had to do this kind of staggered announcement where it's like deep your views going down. And then there's like a two hour period. Cause we already set up with Petapixel. Like there's this two to three hour period where everybody's like, Oh my God, what are you going to do? Like, you know, I'll take care of you. You can live in my house. I'll, you know, like uh, <laughs> you can work in my shop, What like, you know, people were so kind and so nice and like amazing comments, you know, and a lot of people were, understandably upset you know they're like this is a huge resource i use the website every day i use your videos like they like a lot of people are justifiably crushed and i totally get that and so then we did the announcement for petapixels like oh okay you know uh, great we're glad you guys are landing on your feet you know we've known we've known uh, michael we've known jaron schneider the, the editor there forever and so it's again it's that same thing where it's like look we have this relationship. Uh, we've known each other a long time. We work well together. It, it's, it's a natural progression. So we're really grateful to just be able to basically move the show over. I think with Petapixel, we get to have a little bit more freedom to maybe explore things outside of technical gear, which we're really excited about. Maybe, you know, like you said, go beyond just the field test and then talk more about like why we even have these tools in the first place. What is the end results. So we're really excited to explore that. You know, it's always nice to freshen up the show, change it. They always get a little formulaic and it's nice to kind of go in a different direction. So we're excited about that. But yeah, like does that mean, Chris, and and I, by no means do you have to answer this, but does that mean that you are going to do traveling to interesting locations? Uh, I and I'm sure you're all going to be based out of Calgary, but uh yeah. you know, but the the idea of introducing some uh, adventure photography into the mix, I think would be a lot of fun being in locations that some people would want to visit with their camera and sure. seeing how you guys deal with gear in that scenario. Yeah, absolutely. We have some interesting projects coming up, which we can't talk about yet, but they're going to be coming out soon. I think they're going to be really exciting. You know, it's still going to be the show that people know and love, though, right? It's still going to be very familiar, and it's still going to be set in Calgary. We're going to try to get out as much as we can to other locations, you know. And I mean, press events and stuff like that should all still carry on the same way. So it'll be very familiar for people, but it gives us an opportunity to maybe expand into other kinds of things. And yeah, we'd love to show more about the practical applications of these cameras. And uh, it's important for everybody to note that Petapixel's YouTube channel basically has one video, and it's the introduction of Chris <laughs> and Jordan uh, yes. to, to to that new environment. And it is critically important, I think, that everybody go and subscribe to that channel with one quick, vague video, because yes. that is where it's going to be happening uh, at yes. some point, I'm guessing, after April 10th. It's going to be May. We're basically going to be starting at the beginning of May as kind of our launch point. So yes, absolutely. Please go there. Like you'll have content on Deep Your View to watch throughout the, uh, the, the shutdown. Uh, there's still lots of content on there that's coming out. So please do watch that. But then yes, move over, subscribe to Petapixel just so you can keep following the journey. And uh, starting in May, it's going to be great. We're going to be launching videos right away. So April 10th is the cutoff for new content, basically, on the yes. current form of DP review, uh, at which point uh, they also state that uh, the site goes read-only, which means that there's no further interaction. The The forums and stuff are going to go silent, if not disappear entirely at that point. Then um, they say that uh, read-only content will be available for a limited period of time afterwards. And I yes. appeal to the people at the Internet Archive to get in there and make sure that you make a backup of this before it happens. Yeah. Yes. to disappear uh, because that is it's, it's a whole era of uh, the photography journey through the film to digital era um, it's all there it's encapsulated dp review is a time capsule effectively <laughs> it is of incredible all of this yeah. stuff so uh, i'd hate to see it just completely disappear the one question that wasn't answered and i'm not sure if we have an official answer on that is whether or not the uh, dp review tv youtube channel will maintain its existence and just be dormant um you know from amazon's perspective residual views still equals money coming in so i'm not sure why they might completely disavow the usefulness of that but uh, i don't know that, that wasn't <laughs> in the announcement yeah, it's tough. I honestly don't have an answer for you. I mean, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, we can't let this just disappear. I hope that somebody can, can archive it in some way, shape or form. But we have no word on what's going to happen with the YouTube show as far as will they keep the channel open? Uh, are they just going to shut it down? I mean, you, you never know what they're, you know, even if it makes logical sense, 
it's business, it's corporate, you know, it's corporate business, who knows? <laughs> so, ten, you know, ten, is it 10 years is, from now, we're going to be hiding out in shady corners, <laughs> handing each other DVDs of old DP review TV episodes like they did with the Star Wars Christmas special on VHS tapes to try and make sure that that still lived after it was yeah. uh, unceremoniously pulled from existence. Just start bootlegging them. Yeah, they'll become these uh, <laughs> these secret videos that, uh, you know, huge, we'll, we'll NFT them, they'll become super valuable. Oh, uh, lovely. Please don't do that. <laughs> But yeah, right, it's well, a that, wild time. It's it a, wild, a time. wild time. Yeah, we're happy that uh, we're happy that we're, we have a place to land and keep the show going. But I really feel for all the people that have really relied on Deep Review, and I, I wish I had better answers for you. I hope something happens where all that information isn't just lost to the ether. Yeah. Well, we'll time will tell. Uh, yeah. And uh, in the meantime. Uh, you know, I'm sure that, uh, you will uh, hit the ground running when you move over yep. to Petapixel. And as you said, you already have ideas in, in the works and you are still going to be publishing content on DP review TV, correct? Yes. Uh, right and up I until the deadline or so. Right up know. until the deadline. And I want everybody else to know that we do still have the puppets. Chris and Jordan puppets <laughs> are intact. They're, they're moving forward. We brought them over. We're paying them an income. It's all good. So, ah, uh, that is, um, uh, that. Yeah. My heart can rest now. Thank yes, you. Yes, I know. Chris. I know you're really worried about that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's get into our uh, our next story here. Uh, this is this has been a long time in the making. When, when I say long yeah. time, uh, I mean I want to reference the DP review article, um, but I also want to reference the title of the same story covered by Petapixel. So DP review calls it Panasonic blogs about organic sensors improved crosstalk, but doesn't talk photos. Petapixel's headline says Panasonic still hasn't finished the organic CMOS sensor it began in 2013. And that's right. that's a very frustrating headline that Petapixel has run <laughs> rather than the uh, more diplomatic approach on DP review. So I wanted to point that out because I'm hopeful that we will see some snarky commentary from you and Jordan when it comes to your videos that echo the same sort of ethos that Petapixel brings forward as well. Yeah, for sure. There is going to be a bit of a change, right? Because there is a bit of a different approach and, and we like Petapixel's approach and, and we, you know, we, we like to be a little bit more irreverent sometimes. So yeah, it's, but you know, both, both are valid, right? I mean, we've been hearing about these organic sensors for many, many years. Right. Uh, you know, we've been to factory tours in Japan with Panasonic and they'll show little mock-ups and, you know, ideas, but it's all very sort of theoretical and, you know, mysterious. So I could see why some people will look at it skeptically, like, oh, this story again, like when, right? Right. At the same time, it is a pretty big announcement because they are really starting to, to outlie, like, look, we're doing test shots with it. We're, we're starting to, to think about what fields we're going to produce it in. It's interesting that it's primarily going to be more fields like medical, security cameras, automotive stuff, right? Uh, broadcast cameras, but not so much yet creative cameras for photography. Well, they've talked about the broadcast market before, I believe. They may have yeah. had a, a non-working prototype at NAB or one of those shows uh, in, in the past, and, and they were talking about it, and you know, it's the next greatest thing. And um, they never applied that technology to the photo space. Um, but if they have it and they prove it in other markets, that you know, it could be the next big thing because you think about sure. they're just uh, introducing the, uh, the the phase detect autofocus in in their cameras now, uh, and this organic sensor technology is obviously going to be an entirely different offshoot from that. That it's not not necessarily the same thing. But what they're accomplishing here, and this is this is really important because just like. Sigma is having issues scaling up their Foveon sensor, which has a, a layered methodology. You got to remove crosstalk. And yeah. this is where one color, uh, the, the signal from one color actually spills into the detectable signal from another color. And there is software, of course, to deal with that to some degree, but you want the cleanest input signal possible. And it looks like they are accomplishing that through their decades worth of revisions and <laughs> research. Uh, and you know what? It's not easy. That's why it's taking so damn long. And I don't know if anybody else is purporting to have technology that is necessarily similar to this. Uh, I'm sure right. there's a lot happening behind closed doors at Sony and Sony makes sensors for a lot of different people. Uh, and we don't know exactly what's going on there. So 
When we see this blog post, which was officially titled, Panasonic Develops Organic Photoconductive Film, OPF, uh, CMOS Image Sensor Technology that Achieves Excellent Color Reproducibility Under Any Light Source Irradiation. And that's key because if you've got like hard yellow sodium vapor lights, which are being phased out around the world uh, right. for the most part, but if you have uh, color crosstalk, you basically end up with a monochromatic image. There's going to be no deviation from that whatsoever that you could pull out if that crosstalk is high. The same yeah. thing is true of, uh, you know, compact fluorescent bulbs that are missing entire slices of the color spectrum. <laughs> and, you know, if you, again, crosstalk is going to mess that up far more than, you know, if you've got a regular xenon flash or a halogen bulb or the sun where everything is nice and even, that's great. Their previous tech probably would have worked just fine. <laughs> But we're not in those scenarios necessarily as photographers, which might still yeah. be why they're not targeting photographers for this market, because that's going to be the one industry that really pushes the limits beyond the current fringe. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I feel like we've reached a point now with sensors on digital cameras that we've reached kind of a plateau, right? I mean, they're, they're amazing. We have fantastic sensors, high resolution sensors, but you know, it feels like for the last few years, they can only do so much more, right? Yeah. So there has to be this sort of radical change to then start breaking barriers. Uh, and, and at the same time, like, you know, do we really need to in a rush? Maybe not. I mean, sensors today are fantastic, but it's things like being able to capture light spectrum. As I understand, the OPF film is better at capturing certain wavelengths of light that traditional sensors still have a difficult time with. Um, it was interesting also not just eliminating the crosstalk, but being able to then uh, have light more acutely hit at angles on the organic sensors and too. still be collected. Because this um, is something we've always struggled with, with like ultra wide angles and mirrorless formulas. How do you get the corners uh, to still be good? How do you capture that light accurately, right? So this and I, I used an that. anecdote. That this was years ago, but it was a CMOS sensor, so the technology still applies. Um, I had uh, I'd rented a Canon 85mm f1.2 lens. And beautiful lens, not exactly something that I'd keep regularly in my camera bag, but once in a while I'd want it. And I did a test because I had read a white paper on the difference between CCD sensors and CMOS sensors. And one of the key right. things was light from extreme angles has a harder time being detected. Uh, so when you were would compare a, let's, let's go all the way back to film. Uh, a film image versus a CMOS sensor image at extremely wide open apertures where the angle of light isn't narrowed down through a small aperture and it's hitting pretty direct. It can be coming from really extreme angles. Yeah. So I, I took that lens and I shot it at f1.2 at just a you know blank wall uh, and uh, as, a, as a manual exposure, okay? And then I dismounted the lens just enough so that the electrical contacts could not be, uh, you know, maintained. So the right. camera couldn't tell what lens or what aperture was being used. Guess what the result was? Tell us, Don. <laughs> A darker image. Yeah. <laughs> the, and, and so... Uh, the software was behind the scenes uh, in no way that could be detectable in EXIF data. It was adjusting the exposure based on what it was expecting the CMOS yeah. sensor to do at that aperture. Uh, and I felt that was disingenuous, Canon. And I'm going to hold well, on to that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, but now we live in a world where, you know, uh, lens design is being... Um, altered so that you know the manufacturers and the engineers can correct a lot of issues with software in camera right i mean that's kind of how it is now and i think that's great but uh yeah it is funny how, how these things work out and so the more that we can collect that light properly not throw it away not just the the fact that we can get light from more acute angles but also uh I, as i understand it the organic sensors will it's not technically true but waste less light that does reach the sensor and that yeah. should give us better dynamic range, right? Better low light performance. So yeah, these are all big positive breakthroughs. I could see why they're hammering at it. So the question is just how long, when will it work like, like yep. they advertise, right? That's the thing. Well, and, and one key, uh, I guess there, there's two key points that I want to uh, follow up with on the story. Resolution is one. They don't mention anything about resolution here. Right. Uh, and that might be why it's at least initially targeted to medical and industrial uses. Broadcast cameras uh, classically had lower resolution than stills cameras did. 
And so uh, that might be something that they will ramp up over time once they get it functional. Uh, And the other thing is longevity, because the word organic also infers (laughs) the term decay. So who knows how long these particular sensors will last, or at least the organic component in that, and what happens to them over time. Obviously, Panasonic has been working on this for a decade. They see what happens to the stuff they were doing 10 years ago, and they need that longevity to see exactly how they can modify the design to ensure that when you buy a camera or any imaging device that includes this technology, that it's not going to expire after a year or two. Right. I know that was a challenge the engineers were talking about when they talked about it with us. Again, no hard details, but like, yes, we have to work on making these things survive longer. I could see applications like smartphones where, you know, they're disposed of in two years, sadly, anyways, could be a really good platform for something like this, especially where that's that's where you do need those those uh, uh, extra amounts of light to be gathered, right? You know, in small, small sensors, small lenses, that's where also you need these very compact lens designs where the light's going to come acutely to the sensor. So I could see that being really big. Large size sensors and the fact that people might want to make a camera, a proper photographic or video camera last for many, many years. Maybe that's one of the challenges. Who knows? Well, we don't know yet. Uh, I'm sure that we will find out in due course and we'll talk about it when we know more. Um, but it makes but- sense. It makes sense that the the issues that we're dealing with now, the the sort of barriers that we're at now, this addresses a lot of those barriers. So that is it exciting. does. And please check out the article at DP Review that has all of the graphics that help you visualize exactly what we've been (laughs) discussing because it is, it's a difficult concept, all the stuff we're talking about to understand in a verbal conversation when there's all sorts of very helpful graphs and charts and diagrams that that illustrate uh, these concepts in a way that will make a little bit more sense. So check that out. The next uh, stories I have, these uh, three, they're all linked together and they're all from (laughs) Petapixel. Um, Number one, are AI photographers or synthographers a thing now? Number two, (laughs) Chinese AI news anchor works 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And number three, very odd to me, AI image generator Midjourney launches a magazine. So, Chris, I think it's a recurring thing on this podcast now because this is one of the most disruptive uh, elements in the imagery space. I don't even want to say the photography space uh, at that point, as after all, they're calling themselves synthographers at this point. Where do you see all of this going? And is this going to rise up as an entirely distinctly separate industry from photography? Or do you think there will be a mired interconnect between these two that we will be feuding over for (laughs) lifetimes to come? Oh, yeah, I don't know. I'm hoping the AI will just destroy the planet before we even have to deal with any of these questions. You know, it's, (laughs) yeah, you know, it's one of these things where part of me is like this. Every time a new kind of technology comes out, in the photographic world. We've seen this throughout all photographic history. The initial response for most people is to be terrified and say it's a horrible idea, right? And a a very small subsection of people are going to be like, this is great, let's run with it. And uh, I, I think we're seeing that same natural progression. At the same time, with me, photography was always about the 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 abstraction that the, the creative photographer makes when they take the world that they're seeing and they limit it to what they choose to show the viewer, right? You know, it's what I point the lens at. It's what I set settings for. It's the light that I'm waiting for, all that kind of stuff. Those are my biases, my decisions, right? To create that image. And that didn't change when you went to digital. As much as people hated digital, the choice that you are making as a photographer was retained, right? right. So this, this, this whole AI journey now is very different because for me now it's like, well, Yes, you are mentally making decisions on what you want to see, but are those decisions what the viewer is going to see? I mean, it, it's yeah. it's like somebody else is doing the creative process for you, and, well, and, and that's where this is this this is uh, an entirely new art form, and yeah. I think it's important that we have to 
we can't call it painting and drawing and digital art in the traditional sense where you actually had a brush that you were controlling the details that you're creating, uh, nor is it photography where you're not controlling necessarily the, the, the subject, although there's many scenarios in photography where you do control the subject. It's not, uh, a, it's not a, man, a mandatory requirement in photography that you have right. control over the environment. But here, you don't have precise control, and you're not aiding it yourself right now, right yeah. now. But what if the next version of Midjourney or uh, uh, whatever of the dozens are out there? What if you give it a prompt, fairly detailed, and it gives you like a, a knight in shining armor carrying <laughs> a, uh, a sword that has a, a blade width of 10 inches uh, about to fight a demon horde that's rising up out of a, a giant uh, chasm that is spewing lava and ghosts while there's tornadoes in the background. And you see right. what it gives you. And then... Well, first off, I, I photograph that on a regular basis. I mean, I see that every three weeks when I'm The seed imagery, it, it comes from you then, okay? Yeah. So, <laughs> but, you know... So, I, you, you can create this in a way that a skilled painter or artist could have created in the past, and now you've just given this prompt to a machine and the machine generates it. And totally. I, I don't consider that art. Burn me at the stake for it. But I oh, would gone. consider it. I would consider it <laughs> art. If you then uh, if you then have the ability to say, okay, change this, that, and the other thing about it, and it takes the original design and it says okay well change the armor to be rusty made of copper so it's rusting green and then it redesigns that element of it and and then you you start saying okay well make <laughs> lightning in the tornado and then it changes right. that and and then you know the, the the demons need to have five eyes for whatever reason and then it changes that and so then now you are uh, wrestling control over the creation back on your side Right. And but that could qualify as art. You know, uh, yeah, I guess my initial impression is, especially when we talk about the AI two-dimensional art that we're seeing right now, right? Like, I think AI is going to totally change the writing industry. It's going to change the music industry in a big way, right? Like, it's crazy. Um, but when it comes to imagery, it's I, to me, it's more akin to drawing or painting, right? You're, you're, you're imagining something in your head still. You're coming up with an idea. You're coming up with a vision. And the difference is you're then not having to have the technical skill to actually create that vision onto paper or onto screen, right? You're relying on something else to do the technical for you. And I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. You know, But for photography, photography, I think, is still going to be about the photo. It's going to be about the photons. It's going to be about actually capturing light. And I don't see how AI could change that. But I do think we're going to see AI move into letting you edit your photos afterwards, like you were talking about, right? Have your image that you've shot and say, okay, but let's change the skin tone a little bit. Let's, let's add this in the background. I absolutely see that being very powerful and, and, and legitimate, I think. Um, yep, yep. Who knows what will happen in camera. There could be some interesting stuff that happens in camera, certainly on the phone. We're going to see a lot of that too, but it's still yeah. about capturing photons. That, that makes it a photograph for me. I, I think you're completely right. And and I, I do a lot of documentary work and, and there's value in, in my own work being real and yeah. uh, it, it, inherent to that being a version of reality and not making something of fantasy. And, and I play around with things and I kind of cross those lines, uh, especially with some of my ultraviolet work that feels otherworldly. And I stage things to make it look like, right. um, you know, I've got this one image where this glowing rock a chunk of cerocyte, uh, which is a lead ore uh, variety that had impurities that caused it to glow the same color as the sun. Uh, and then I've got like moss flowers that are pointing in towards it as if to evoke heliotropism where uh, things grow towards the sun. And it was a pretty cool sort of fantasy, but reality type staged image. And uh, photography is that to me. But yeah. when you get into the AI space, then, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that, uh, that we could talk about in terms of reality or not. But one thing that stood out to me is that that Chinese AI news anchor. And right. you've got the ability to, this has nothing to do with photography at that point, but this, this AI imagery is able to create the semblance of a person that will only get better over time, even if it's still in the uncanny valley right now, uh, yeah. that will be able to profess you news uh, as an authoritative figure 
that uh, because a news anchor has some level of authority or respect to people that are listening to the the words that come out of their mouth. And and so that crosses the line where this right. artificial creation is professing real knowledge or supposed to be real knowledge. Of course, we're talking about China here, which is uh, an authoritarian state. But this also goes into play where you could create more dramatic uh, fake news and propaganda and what have you. Right. Uh, that no person would be refusing to talk about on the standard of ethics. Right. Now, you could argue that human news anchors nowadays are finding themselves more and more in those positions as well, yep. right? Absolutely, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't uh, – <laughs> I, think, I think certain countries have been doing that for a long time, uh, even with humans. But, yeah, it is interesting. I mean, on the one hand, to me, I see where that could be a very interesting application where it does make a lot of sense, right? Like whether I like it or not, I could see that being uh, a way, I know, you know, they're trying to experiment with, for example, connecting with senior citizens who might feel lonely, providing yeah. them, you know, a, a voice to talk to, a person to interact with, right? Uh, certainly getting into other realms like pornography and stuff, I could absolutely see it going that way too. Uh, I was joking with my kid. I was like, "What? What? Uh, how do you feel about having like an AI girlfriend ten years from now? What's that going to be like? <laughs> you know, like I, who knows? Like it's. I think that's really going to take off. So that whole concept of having a, a, a face that you can relate to, uh, an emotional response to that face, because that's how we're built. Uh, but they're giving you the news is, I think, very powerful, but also very, yeah, as you say, Orwellian, very 1984. You know, for sure. Uh, someone still has to decide what that content is that's going to be put across. And I wonder if there's going to be pushback on that. I mean, there's something about human interaction where it is imperfect, where they do sometimes make mistakes, where they do sometimes flub lines that maybe people find endearing. I don't know. It's, it's a weird world, but I think that's, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. A lot more of that virtual human stuff is going to be huge. And, and the pace that this is uh, occurring at is, I mean, th this revolution has been mostly the very end of 2022 and 2023. That's half a year that yeah. this has been happening. Um, and it's gained enough popularity that uh, Midjourney is going to launch a magazine, which I think is a stupid idea. <laughs> um, that's my opinion. But I, you know, a, a, an imprint, a physical dead tree edition, uh, and I'm sure they'll have digital versions of it as right. well. But that will feature uh, the basically the best of the best that is created from that platform, and that will only be improving over time, which is basically like a I don't know a portfolio of the yeah. entity that uh, that is Midjourney. And so, from a promotional standpoint, I I don't mind that, but I'm not going to read it with any editorial interest whatsoever. <laughs> um, it's just going to make me depressed that my extreme efforts at creating some of these scenes in photography are replaced by uh, an, a, there, it's not sentient, but an AI that is uh, just grabbing stuff that could have even been referenced from my original data, the way that they yeah. grabbed the information to begin with, and they made something better than what I could create. <laughs> it's not reality, but it still bothers me that they're <laughs> going to be featuring this so prominently in a, in a traditional <laughs> media format. Yeah. That's the kicker. That bugs me. Well, it's it's proof of concept, right? They want to they wanna show, you know, they, they want to show you something where you can actually see it with your own eyes and be like, wow, okay, seeing is believing, right? Have you tried putting in there, like, make a, a macro image in the style of Don Komarechka, you know, with this kind of material and this kind of light and, and see how close it came? I've, I've been afraid to, um, because <laughs> I, if, if I, if I tried to describe one of my images perfectly and they actually feed me back one of my own images, then I know that I should sue mid journey uh, well, because <laughs> my image is going to be in there. Like what, like if I say, um, you know, uh, show me a snowflake image in the style of Don Kamarechka and it presents me with one of my snowflakes. Right. Then, I mean, am but it I, won't. But it might. It's gonna. It's gonna take at least twenty of your snowflake images. When when you can um, uh, give it a specific prompt of show me a picture of a of a person. Uh, I was I forget the name of the person, but it was a specific uh, famous person. It generated that image, like the right. actual photograph, and it had been compressed and everything. But it wasn't faking it, and that just went to prove that 
the AI engine wasn't just trained on the images and then discarded them, but it holds them in its code or in a database and utilizes that. And if I could prove that, I'd have to be talking to some lawyers. And that's a stress that I just don't need right now. But what if it just looks at 20 of your snowflake images and then bastardizes them all together and creates a new snowflake image, right? At Uh, what point can you then say, oh, that's still mine? Uh, That's where it gets really gray. Yeah. And so the end product would potentially be transformative. And and I'm not a lawyer here, but, um, (laughs) but copyright infringement still occurred because it has a copy of my original work without my permission. And copyright is to word it the other way, the right to copy that I have not given them that right. right, And thereby that right has been infringed by the fact that they could even be using my images to begin with. I mean, all these corporations are relying heavily on more and more data, right? It's just constantly mining more data. They want more images to reference from. And yeah, like, do we do we know where all of this this referential material is coming from? Right? I mean, it's it's wild, and I'm sure there's and there's, to there's be... no stopping it, right? You know, if no, you assume no you're in the end of existence, uh, then yeah. <laughs> some company in you know uh, Siberia or North Korea or somewhere in China uh, that where the legal protections are much uh, more wild west like. I mean, I, I I get my work infringed in countries all around the world, and I find it very difficult when. I, ca- I can't hire a lawyer or they, they're not going right. to work on contingency or they just won't respect copyright laws at all. I'll give you one right. example here uh, that, that, I, that I do want to make public in that um, uh, I've tried for months writing emails and things uh, to the Canadian Chamber of Commerce Vietnam. And they used one of my images, one of my most famous images, my maple leaf flag image. Yeah. Um, they use that to uh, promote uh, Canada Day on their Facebook page and possibly other locations, branded it themselves, put big words all over my image, and I never gave them permission to do that. I sent them an invoice for 500 euro uh, to, to solve this because it was, it was old, it's in Vietnam, it's still worth yeah. something to me. You shouldn't be able to do that uh, for, for my image. And uh, no response. I follow up, yeah. no response. I follow up and I threatened... Uh, to say, okay, well, if you're just being total idiots about this, um, I mean, I didn't use that word in, in my email, but <laughs> they're they're disregarding my notion of, okay, you've infringed on my rights. And uh, and so I, I said, all right, well, m- maybe I take this public. And they took the image down and never responded to me. And so now I'm taking it public, uh, Canadian Chamber of Commerce, Vietnam. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not happy that you have refused to communicate with me and fighting a copyright battle on your own in foreign countries without a lawyer is a very difficult thing. And I can't get you in the court of law in Vietnam, but I can take you to the court of public opinion. And so there we go. Um, there you go. I'll probably post that on Twitter. <laughs> the next image someone's going to use will just be AI generated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's true. But at least they wouldn't be taking mine, unless mine exactly. was the seed information for that one. And then that's... Uh, I'm going to pull, my hair is going to go gray. Yeah. <sighs> Chris, uh, I want to bring this back around to, uh, to DP review. Okay. And there was a, a classic episode. I mean, it wasn't that, that old. Um, it wasn't from five years ago or so, but, uh, it was recently reposted on DP review, the best and worst ways to clean your lenses. And I encourage everybody to watch Chris Nichols destroy camera equipment. Um, <laughs> and it was non-functional gear, as you say in the video, but it also illustrates some of the, the ways that we can deal with proper camera maintenance. And right. uh, and also, not just lenses. You don't talk about sensors there, but we could talk about sensors as well. Um, what do you do to protect your equipment? And are you being honest that you do it the <sighs> best practices all the time? Oh, man. No, I'm the worst person to ask for this. So what inspired us to even do that in the first place, the episode, I'm terrible with lenses. Uh, You know, in so far as I've never treated photographic equipment as precision instruments. I know a lot of people do, and that's fine. To me, they're more like a shovel, right? I treat it like a tool. I think they should get bashed up. I think they should be able to survive getting knocked around. Um, And, and, uh, I don't use a lot of lens caps. You know, if I'm switching lenses, I tend to just switch quickly, throw the lens into my bag, 
you know, I'm not putting it on the ground or anything, right? But, you know, right. into my camera bag, no lens cap, whatever, dust be damned, it gets all over the place. And uh, I've actually been really successful. I've actually, I should have way more damage to not only mine, but other people's gear uh, than I actually have done. So to be honest, the only the only thing that really comes to mind that I had severe lens damage was actually one of my lenses. It was an old Nikkor 85 F2. And it's back when I used the ROR cleaning solution. There was a, a slight period of time where their solution was too powerful and it was actually damaging coatings. And they've since fixed that. ROR is a great product, by the way. Feel free to use it. But there was a time period. It stripped the, the coating right off the front of the lens. And you can't which, put that back without replacing the element, right? No, no. And, you know, luckily it's an old AI vintage piece of Nikkor glass. So it kind of looks cool. It gives it a softer look. And But, you know, it's not I know what I wanted. But uh, I haven't scratched any lenses. We did have, back in the camera store days, we photographed a gentleman in Crow's Nest Pass. He was hammering out iron. He was a blacksmith. Hammering out pig iron. And a hot shard of steel came off, hit the front of a Pentax 24 to 70, and did put a mark in it. Uh, I, I and, made a gouge in my uh, Lumix 24 to 105 uh, uh, S series lens. Yeah, but I still use that lens regularly, and you can't sure. see it in the photographs. Just as no, if you have dust inside the lens itself, you're not going to see that dust whatsoever. Um, it might modify flare or glare in, in some ways. Um, the only uh, dust that I've ever seen interact with a photograph is dust that is on the rear element. Because if you've got dust that close to the sensor, and even closer you get dust that is on the sensor itself, then that's going to be problematic because you're going to see that and you want to try to clean that up. And of course you want to have the front element, uh, uh, the front element of the, uh, the, the sensor or the, uh, the, the lens to be as clean as possible. But that's just for the, uh, you know, I don't know, the persnickety uh, bunch <laughs> of us. I, I don't, I'll yeah. tell you, uh, Chris, I, I'll just leave my, I mean, I put them in a bag like, like when I'm out, uh, uh, in you know in the field hiking or traveling what have you but there's no front or rear cap on my lenses uh if yeah. anything gets too egregious in the field i've got some cleaning stuff that i can deal with to sort that out but i'd rather not be inconvenienced by the constant uh adjustment and okay where did i put this word i just leave it and yeah. I, I i was talking to a canadian photojournalist uh, Boris Spremo, who's uh, since left uh, left this earth about a decade ago or so. Mm. Um, and uh, he was quite famous. I've got one of his books. And he was doing a camera club presentation uh, in, in, in Barrie, where I was uh, living at the time. And he, he knew my work, and we had exchanged some emails and stuff in the past. And he told me, it's like, Don, we're, we're not like them, pointing to like, the <laughs> camera club crowd. I was like, no... I, when I when I'm called out to to go and photograph a, a fire uh, at uh, you know two a.m., the camera gear is rolling around in the back of my car, oh, and then yeah. I put it together and I shoot and I get the shot and that's all that matters. And sh should we be more careful with our equipment? Probably. You don't want anything ah. really bad to happen. <laughs> but at the same time, um, yeah, a little I mean, bit I of carelessness might not be bad it's not good well, i'm not going to say that's good but it might not destroy things <laughs> it just depends right like if you ever see a photojournalist gear it's beat to hell it looks horrible right but it's about getting the shot at the moment you don't have time to consider the safety now i will say that for me i do have plenty of time to consider the safety of the lenses and so yes i should treat them better but one thing that that video taught us when we did we did some crazy stuff like first off we didn't show it in the video, but I actually did an experiment. I took a bunch of lenses and I put the most horrible caustic things I could find in the house on the lenses. So I put Why like, was that not in the video? Well, because I'll tell you why. <laughs> so I, I put like, you know, I put basic stuff like vinegar. I put like Drano. I put, you know, whatever horrible chemicals, brake cleaner, all this kind of stuff. And I didn't, at least to my eye, after a couple days, see any perceptible damage whatsoever to the coatings on the lenses. So I was like, well... We're just going to leave it out because there's no, you know, there's no result. What I did find interesting, I will admit, is we did our accelerated test with our Dremel tool and a multi, a multi-fiber, uh, sorry, a microfiber cloth wrapped around the end of the Dremel tool. And we we went on the lens, and even just with a fine graining, uh, you know, powdering of dust, and then going at it with the Dremel tool, just to kind of show like an accelerated process. Yeah, you do end up actually scratching the front of your lenses just by cleaning them. And I'm a total 
breath on the lens t-shirt kind of guy, right? Absolutely. I Me think a lot too. of us are. I, I hate to sure. admit it, or maybe I shouldn't. I should just embrace it. That's, it's just yeah. what it is. <laughs> are we doing microscopic damage? Yes. But like, you know, over the amortized over the life of the lens, I still don't think it's going to be imperceptible. And I think a lot of people do fetishize their lenses. Absolutely. I, I also understand that, yes, they're very expensive and, and I'm not saying you should treat them poorly, but there's a balance point where you still have to utilize these things as the tools they are and not try to keep them as pristine objects, right? They're, they're tools. You got to use them. And so, yeah, it taught me a lot of things making that video. Like, yeah, we do damage to our lenses, but it's very slow. You're not going to really see it with regular life use. And getting the shot is more important than protecting the gear, in my opinion. One of the lenses that I've abused the most is the Canon MPE 65 millimeter macro lens. Oh, yeah, I um, use that a lot. I, I use that to do snowflakes and it's not weather sealed and I use it in very horribly damp and cold environments for over 10 years and it still works. Yeah. Um, uh, definitely voiding a warranty, uh, you know, in, in, in using it in, in that scenario. But uh, at the same time, I needed to get the shot. That's what was required to get the shot. If I ended up breaking the equipment, getting that magical image, then I got to have a budget for fixing that. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> it's just part of the process. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, I encourage everybody to go in and take a look at that uh, uh, video and don't cringe too it was much. A fun they one. were broken lenses <laughs> to begin with. Yes, but, they were broken lenses to begin with, but it was a fun experiment. And uh, yeah, it, it, I think even as silly as it is, there's lessons to be learned from it. All right. Now, before we get to our picks of the week, uh, Chris, where, and this is a, usually an easy question to to ask but you might not know exactly what the answer is um uh, where can people find you right now where do you want people to go oh to yeah find absolutely you? well so first off the last spelling of my name n-i-c-c-o-l-l-s is a very rare way so if you search my last name you'll find me on things like instagram and twitter but yeah definitely check out chris.nichols at instagram and, and on twitter as well uh, also, if if anybody out there likes fly fishing, go check out bowrivertroutfitters.com because I host the YouTube channel for that fly shop as well. It's a totally different feel, you know, but I, I'm proud of that work too. So definitely, if you're interested in that, follow that. That would be great. But otherwise, go to the Petapixel channel like we talked about. Subscribe now so that you don't miss when we start launching videos and just let's keep this ride going. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I, I think that you are going to have some pretty big splashes. This is just my premonition. I, you haven't told me anything, uh, but I think there will be some very big initial successes, uh, not to put the pressure on too hard. <laughs> oh, uh, no. <laughs> but but I also think that that's going to be what's going to drive the audience level up. And uh, I, for one, have already subscribed. And so uh, everybody can, can find that uh, at, at Petapixel. And I'll put the links to the, the YouTube channel in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. And uh, one small plug for myself as well. <laughs> I, I signed up for a, uh, an account with uh, buymeacoffee.com where you know you can throw nice. some money into a tip <laughs> jar and uh, you can buy me a coffee. Maybe stipulate that you want me to buy beer with it. That's fine too. Uh, right. But it's just a way for, uh, for any listeners to show support. And uh, you know I, I've had quite a few... Uh, donations. And I've been using that to create images that I dedicate to the public domain in support of Ukraine. And so uh, that uh, nice. you know, that project is going on. And I'll, I'll make sure that the link to that is in the show notes at well, uh, buymeacoffee.com slash photo, I believe, but check the show notes to be sure. And uh, if if I hit uh, multitudes of my uh, my goal for new images, I'll dedicate a whole day to just going out there and uh, trying to shoot something blue and yellow themed uh, nice. to support uh, uh, those those particular efforts. So I'm, I'm going to start up uh, by Don an MPE 65 uh, fund uh, page for sure. I'll, I'll need one eventually. I think mine <laughs> is on its last legs. Uh, <laughs> all right. Picks of the week. Uh, hmm. Chris, what have you got? You're kind of hemming and hawing about what you were going to select earlier. What did you land? Yeah. On? You know what? I'm I'm going to talk about uh, a line of products. So Michael Maven, Michael the Maven. Have you heard of Michael the Maven? I he's, have, yeah. he's a good, yeah, he's a good guy. Uh, 
he makes beautiful filters and he's always been really good to Jordan and I letting us use those filters. And so we've, we've gone through many iterations of them. They've always been excellent. So I really like the latest magnetic filters that he makes. And I know magnetic filters are nothing new, but his magnets are strong. We haven't lost them yet in the field. Uh, super easy to change. I like that they're color coded, especially when we're doing video work. It's really easy to just through the color coding, know exactly what ND strength we're going to use for video work. I use it for trout fitters as well. Uh, you know, for any video work, the polarizer is nice and clean. So if you're into landscape, if you're into video work, those magnetic filters are brilliant. I love them. Fantastic. I, I don't own any, but maybe I should change that because the They're convenience great. factor is important. And, uh, and and I feel like the more convenient this is, the more I'm willing to be creative in that particular area. It, it takes that barrier to entry down a couple of notches. Um, now, do they make like a, a DIY? Like, can I take one of the filter holders apart and put my own filter in it? Uh, like just I, exchange the glass? <clears throat> I don't know. I suppose you could. I personally never would because I find them nice and clean. Like we, for the NDs are clean. We don't have any sort of warm cast or anything thrown in. The polarizers are clean, but uh, yeah, but you I, could Chris, smash I, the glass. Yeah, you could smash I, the glass I have out. Weird <laughs> glasses. Like th this one here is a 900 nanometer infrared filter. And it's got a mirror uh, coating on it as just part of the filter design. And that's not a standard filter. And I wouldn't expect a manufacturer to produce something like that in, in a specialized mount. So, I mean, I, I'm I sure you use, could make it work. I, I, I can use calipers to take the glass out of the, the filter uh, uh, threads itself. And, uh, but maybe I should ask him if he'll sell me some, some blanks that I could adapt to all of my uh, various and sundry filters. I mean, they're nice and slim. They're rugged. They, they're, you know, the glass isn't rattling inside. It's really high quality stuff. So, and the magnets, like I say, are strong. We haven't lost any. So, yeah, it'd be a good platform if anybody could modify it to work. You could. Done. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Uh, Five minute Mark epoxy and a, and a hammer, uh, you know, and a screwdriver. You're good. Hammers and camera equipment usually don't go well <laughs> together. Um, but my, my pick is uh, it's a rather small little utility. Uh, Philips makes a, um, they've got their Hue system and they've got a yeah. smart plug. And so uh, this, if you have any Philips Hue stuff, you probably have the hub that can control stuff and your phone links up to, and you need that in order to use the smart plug. But the smart plug uh, is just an electrical socket. And so why is that interesting? Well, you can turn it on and off with your phone uh, as you wish, but you can also program it to, to turn on and off at specific times, uh, not just, you know, times of the day, but, you know, uh, turn on something 20 minutes after sunset. And so I've got that set to turn on my, um, my outdoor lights uh, surrounding the whole year. I didn't want to invest in hue bulbs for every single spot. Uh, so I just bought the plug and plugged them all in to the same device. And, and that worked uh, perfectly. But like I've got some, uh, I've got some plants growing. <coughs> I have an ant formicarium over here, uh, and I have that those turn off at seven o'clock uh, every day. And I could set it to sunrise and sunset if I was feeling fancy about that. And you could set them up all on different zones. It's very a, a useful tool to to be introduced to home automation without nice. being afraid of certain things. And um, I've got five of them now. <laughs> and so I figured that would be a, cause once you get one and you say, you know what, that, that works for those lights. Well, you know, what about, um, my, my daughter's nightlight, right? Where I can plug it into this. And then when I know she's asleep, turn it off without going into her room and disturbing her. Right. There's a lot of That's really cool uses <laughs> to, to have because it's the, it, you step on that one wrong board and it's creaky and oh, it's, they wake it's up over. immediately. <laughs> it's over. So not exactly photography related per se, but I would say that this is a really cool tool to have. I've got the European version. Of course, they make the North American version as well. I, I would definitely up. use that for the aquariums. Yeah, this is a, a 2799 euro. I'm not sure what that would be in Canadian or US, but it's not terribly expensive and it's great to have. Ah, nice. All right. Um, that's it, man. That's the end of this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Chris, thank you so much for being on. I know that you've got a lot going on. 
behind the scenes, there's this whole transition from DP review to Petapixel, um, and uh, life goes on. You're you're yep. you're a, a working father and entrepreneur, and you got the fly fishing <laughs> stuff, and you find the time to sit down with me, and I appreciate it very much. Hey, no, it's my pleasure, and I'm I'm glad to see the show back. Like I said, yeah. So uh, All right. nice to see you again too. And thanks to everybody for listening. If you have any questions or commentary uh, about what we talked about, you know where to find Chris. Uh, you know where to find me. Write to us. Tell us what you think. Keep that conversation going. I appreciate you all very much. And now it's time to get out and shoot.